So, welcome back to the Birdie Bug Pod, episode 31. So, exciting episode today. It is indeed. It's our first ever guest episode. So, we are very fortunate to have my friend Josh. Not only is he a zoologist, an ecologist, but also, certainly by our standards, incredibly well-travelled, um, to be here to talk about his recent trip to Sumatra. So, Josh, thank you very much for coming down. Pleasure to be here. Thank yes. you. Welcome, Josh, to our humble little podcast. It's great that we've mentioned you on more than one occasion, I think, on this on a few episodes. Yeah, so you are already yeah. famous, I think. So uh. you are, Yeah, definitely had a few, na- <laughs> few name drops. Yeah. Um, and we'll cover a few things uh, today, but as I've mentioned, the main topic is going to be Sumatra because you're not that long uh, back. Uh, you came back sort of mid-January, I think? Um, yeah, well, more early January, I'd say. Uh, okay. But you are out there for a good, like, five weeks, I think, weren't you? Five, yeah, five weeks. and a half weeks. Yeah. Um, and obviously, if anybody listened to the previous episode where we spoke about ecotourism, it sort of we mentioned it might tee up this episode because we're going to go into that a little bit about how uh, ecotourism is out in Sumatra. But we'll kick it off first with a little bit of introduction to who you are because we've given you some name drops, but we haven't really given you a lot of background <laughs> information. Um, okay. So obviously, we met at university. We both did zoology uh, up in Bangor, and I think we've mentioned the trip to Arizona. But if you want to just give a little bit of intro to your sort of work in wildlife and your um, wildlife photography and sort of how it plays into what you do. Yeah, so um, well, when I left university, I um, I went into an ecology role with the uh, Wildlife Trust. Um, and I was working as a trainee ecologist. So um, the Wildlife Trust tends to work on not only sort of um, developments in, in Hampshire, but also uh, rewilding projects. Um, so I did a lot of survey work on uh, sort of private estates that are trying to rewild in areas of Hampshire. Uh, so working with things like great crested newts, hazel dormice, uh, doing bird surveys, uh, all the protected stuff basically. Um, and then, yeah, I went into a few similar roles after that. Um, so I went from sort of trainee to assistant ecologist at the Hampshire County Council. Uh, hated it, so I left. <laughs> uh, and then um, yeah. we won't ask why. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, eventually, I found myself working um, as a tour guide for the uh, wildlife holiday company Nature Trek, uh, which are also based in Hampshire. So um, yeah, I started working for them as a tour guide, and I was doing that on sort of a sporadic basis, um, sort of in addition to my. Uh, regular full-time job as an ecologist um, and then eventually uh, after doing a few tours I saw they had a job opening up as a website media assistant um, sort of promoting um, these tours which go in search of the the world's wildlife in pretty much every corner of the planet uh, so I got that job I'm still working there now uh, been there for about a year and a half um, proudly displaying the logo on your fleece I see <laughs> Well, yeah, that, that's a coincidence, I think. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I'm still leading tours today. So um, sort of been to places like uh, Morocco. Uh, I've been leading a reptile and amphibian-focused trip there. Um, and we're sort of introducing um, complete novices to uh, herpetology um, and, yeah, taking them to one of the best places for it. Uh, and it's not just... Um, reptiles and amphibians we focus on there we also focus on birding and uh, there's various 
interesting invertebrates to look at as well. Yeah, to be fair, I mean, we yeah. met at the Entomology Society, didn't we? So we, we definitely bonded over all the insects and creepy crawlies more than yeah. probably the snakes and uh, reptiles. Yes, I heard a lot of stories about your time. In Arizona. <laughs> to, yeah. That, yeah. yeah. Um, and then to be fair, you've also, you've done tours around like the New Forest as well, haven't you? Taking people out looking for rare butterflies and, and things like that too. Yeah, so I did a, a tour called, just called Hampshire Butterflies. And um, it's not just the New Forest, we sort of go to every corner of the county uh with a little step into surrey actually to look for the wood white um because chiddingfold forest there is one of the best places to see it in the country oh is it that's a place i know quite well because godalming and chiddingfold i know yeah really well so i didn't realize that about chiddingfold yeah yeah no it's worth going there in sort of june time wow. to, to see them um some areas of the forest are better than others yeah. but where there's coppicing tends to be quite good for them yeah um and I've also done tours in Scotland on the Ardla Merkin Peninsula, um, sort of looking for pine martins and eagles. And we also do a boat trip to Langa and Staffa um, to visit the, the, sea, Islands. the seabird colonies. Um, so yeah, so of- you've seen golden eagles in Scotland? Yes. Yeah, I've we seen white-tailed eagles. We never saw, we went to Mull. We were only there for a week and yeah. they did say seeing golden eagles was... A bit of a lottery, and if you did see them, they tend to be 3,000 feet up or 2,500 feet up or whatever, quite high, soaring up in the air. We never did see a golden eagle, No, we eagle, didn't, did we? sadly. No, um, but, but um, I one think... One on my bucket list still. Yeah, yeah. I think it's you need to know roughly the area in which the nest is located yeah. in order to see them. Yeah. Otherwise, they can be very difficult. So did you get reasonably close views? or? Yes. Wow. Um, so we went to um, a particular bay... Um, on the Ardamurkin Peninsula, where it's just so remote, there's just nothing there yeah. apart from wilderness, and the eagles hunt around there. And um, yeah, we were actually looking at twite as well there. Oh wow! Okay, which is a very yeah. another good bird. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as we were doing that, we just see this huge shape bloom over us, and this golden eagle is flying. I don't know, maybe forty feet above the sea. Wow. Um, so you can really get a sense of how, how big they are yeah. when they're that low. Stunning bird. Um, yeah, one that we still need to go back for. Yeah, no, it's a good excuse to go back to Scotland yeah. for. Yeah, we need one, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then outside of, of the nature trek tours, obviously even during our time at university, you always seem to be off somewhere remote, normally tropical, in a jungle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that tends to getting, eaten, yeah. getting eaten alive, I should think. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where are some of the other places that you've, that you've been off to? Um, so, yeah, I forgot to mention, um, after university, I did some voluntary work for the NGO Operation Wallacea which uh, you may be familiar with um, if you're based in the UK. But they basically run um, biodiversity monitoring projects in um, pretty much every tropical location Yeah, because quite a lot of students, I mean, there is zoologists that would do like a placement year with them to get research for their dissertations and stuff. They they do quite a lot of student projects. Yeah, well, I I was a student. Um, Actually, my first big trip away outside of the UK was with Operation Wallacea to Guyana. Um, and I was there for a month. And then after that, I got more experience elsewhere. And then I saw they're sort of looking for specifically herpetologists to join their expeditions to, um, you know, take control of their reptile and amphibian surveys. Um, and the first one I applied for was uh, Indonesia. They do an expedition to Sulawesi, uh, specifically a, an island in the southeast called Bhutan, which is off of the mainland. And 
got some amazing endemic species there and uh, interesting culture as well in Sulawesi. And yeah, so I was just doing basically uh, sort of distance sampling transect surveys for reptiles and amphibians there. So we're seeing things like, um, you know, big reticulated pythons. Uh, you got various pit vipers and lots of interesting animals, basically. Um, one of my favourites is uh, the Draco genus, the uh, gliding lizards. Oh, right, yeah. Um, which have these sort of expandable flaps of skin on yeah. their flanks, which is extended by their ribs, actually. They extend wow. their ribs. And, yeah, it's amazing, you know, living in that forest because sometimes you'll just be, I don't know, brushing your teeth or something and you just see this lizard flying out of the sky. <laughs> it's kind of quite surreal, uh, I would think. Coming past your field of view. And, yeah. yeah, it's it's pretty mythical, actually. Yeah. Pretty, pretty amazing. Um, and then after that, I applied for another one, but um, this one was in Mexico in the Calacmal Biosphere Reserve um, in the Yucatan Peninsula. Um and again, a lot of special uh, special wildlife to that area. And I was doing the same thing, uh, looking for reptiles and amphibians. Um, but there, it's, it's quite interesting um, on the amphibian front because all of the, well, most of the rivers are underground, so about 40 feet underground. Oh, that's quite cool. Uh, because the Yucatan is basically on a big limestone bed. And limestone is porous. So when it rains, it just seeps through the ground and into these underground rivers. Um, so the only above ground source of water that amphibians can breed in are either artificial cattle tanks and things like that. But um, if we're talking natural uh, bodies of water, uh, there's these things called aguadas, which are basically ponds. But what's happened is there's a depression. Uh, when a depression forms in the limestone, the leaf litter accumulates and starts to rot. And it makes a sort of mucus layer and it traps the water within the depression which creates a pond or a lake. Yeah. And yeah, they're vital for all forms of life in the forest of the Yucatan. Um, but yeah, with climate change happening, um, they're becoming smaller and smaller. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're losing species due to that. So it was important to monitor the, monitor those to see how it's, it's cha- changing over time. Um, so in comparison to the two of us, <laughs> very well travelled. <laughs> very well travelled, really yeah. Um, only uh, sort of scratches the surface and well, we'll we to, went to Mull come on yeah and obviously I went to <laughs> Mull's great yeah. and I've been di- yeah dining off Arizona stories for years <laughs> <laughs> yes you have not um, and obviously along with the, the research and the travelling you're sort of an avid wildlife photographer which we spent most of this morning pre-recording just chatting about cameras uh, so we'll definitely get into some of the photography stuff uh, later on in the episode as well but your most recent trip was Sumatra and so yes. I guess we'll start off with the most important question is sort of why you picked Sumatra as a location to go to and what it was that you necessarily wanted to see. Was it part of your job to go there? Was that no, no, a, this it wasn't a personal a project, trip. It was a personal trip, right? Yeah. I actually took some unpaid leave to do it. Oh, okay. Because I was there for about six weeks. Right. <laughs> All over Christmas as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, obviously it's tough being away from family, but it's a great time to go because there's hardly any tourists. Um, so you can get around without any hassle. Or, yeah. And yeah, it's great. You don't um, get any monsoon time at that time. Is it, is it monsoon uh, season then? So it was the wet season when yeah. I was there. Yeah. So our winter is um, their wet season yeah. mostly. Um, so you got wet? 
I got wet. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's sort of inevitable in a rainforest. Yeah, forest, I think it, it is. Yeah, um, comes to the territory. But the reason I went there is a combination of factors, really. Um, so, going back to when I was in Sulawesi, when I um, came back from that trip in 2018, and I was sort of posting things online about the trip and the species that lived there, there was a conservationist in Sumatra. Um, his name is Punky Natrama, and in Sumatra, he's quite well known for his work, um, and he specialises in botany. But he was saying he would love, you know, conservationists from or wildlife biologists, photographers, whatever, from other parts of the world to come to Sumatra, and uh, you know, basically see the good side of Sumatra and rather, show it off a little bit, rather than just the palm oil infestation over there. Um, and he said, you know he'd be happy to show me around and can put me up in a few places. And that was, yeah, what was that? 2018. So yeah, about five years later, we actually started talking about it and planning a trip to, for me to go. Um, so that was one of the factors having that contact within Sumatra, but also, um, I think out of the larger Indonesian islands, um, Sumatra is, is very little known about it, um, compared to say Borneo or um, Java, they seem to be more popular um, places for people to travel to. Um, so, and also there's the big um, sort of palm oil aspect of Sumatra. Um, you know, the government there wants to be the largest uh, exporter of palm oil in the world. I actually, doing the research, I read that Sumatra is the largest exporter of palm yeah. oil now. Yeah, and yeah. Um, I must admit, when I was doing the little bit of research, it was a little bit, it was a little bit disheartening, actually, mm. um, the deforestation that is going on for obviously palm oil plantations is a mm. is a bit heartbreaking. Yeah, it is, and um, well, you can see the the sort of extent of that when you travel through Sumatra. Yeah, yeah, I think I yeah found that between 1985 and 2014, a certain part of the forest called oh, I'll have to try and pronounce this, Bukit <clears throat> Tigapula. Don't know if that's how you say it. Or thirty hills. So we'll go with that. Thirty hills is um, easier yeah, to say. Lost thirty-two percent of its forest cover with, between those between nineteen eighty-five and twenty fourteen. So mm -hmm. it's quite a rapid decline. Well, in my trip, I sort of had um, the interesting experience of going to the north and the south provinces, which are very different in terms of the forest cover. Right. So in the north is where most of the protected national parks are, and it's probably the most intact part of Sumatra in terms of its biodiversity. Is that the um the Lusa ecosystem? Yes, yeah. because um, I read that I read that that is the one place left on earth where tigers, elephants, orangutans and rhinos live together. Yes. Which is which incredible. Is quite an incredible accolade. Mm. To Isn't have, that incredible? Uh, and it has to factor into keeping it protected. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly. And um I believe one of the best places to see all of those um, apart from orangutans, actually, is in Way Kambas National Park, yeah. which is in the southeast. But that's like one of the main strongholds for the Sumatran rhino. So I wasn't near there. So, <laughs> so despite the fact that there's only about 40 or 50 of them They're left, in desperate trouble, aren't they? Um, I'd had no chance of seeing them, yeah. really. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I went to the Loso ecosystem, which is the good side of Sumatra, yeah. if you like. Um, Sorry, whereabouts was that geographically? I forgot which. Is that in the north. In the north. And then after that, I went to the south uh, to Benkulu uh, province. And um, there it's a lot more deforested and there's more sort of villages and 
plantations and not just palm oil but like there's also um for example rubber tree plantations which are less invasive but they're still not optimal for biodiversity um and they're also very popular yeah i mean i guess any large sort of monocrop is never going to be particularly uh, well suited to the biodiversity out there in comparison to a nice primary rainforest no no but um that doesn't mean the palm oil is devoid of life actually it's just devoid of the sort of keystone species right um you can still find various reptiles and amphibians in there and you know i saw a buffy fish owl in, in oh yeah one that's one of my favorite photos of yours which actually i didn't expect um so things can still live in these plantations but it's just not optimal yeah for the ecosystem yeah, knowing Punky, um, the fact that Sumatra is sort of lesser known than the other Indonesian islands. And also, I'd never seen a great ape or a wild elephant. Right, and you can see both in one and place. I can see both in one yeah. trip. Yeah, amazing. So I thought, yeah, that's another reason to go. And um, yeah, it's um, I, di- I didn't really have a solid plan upon arriving there, apart from the first three weeks. Right. I booked a lodge in... Um, the village of Bukit Lawang, which is um, quite a popular tourist destination, but they do a lot of ecotourism activities around there. Um, but from there, I sort of winged it basically and t- talked to people in the village about other villages and what guides uh, are there to provide different services. And through doing that, it was actually very fruitful because just down the road from Bukit Lawang, there's a village called Batu Katan which I believe translates to frog rock or something right. like that. Yeah. And there's a chap there. His nickname was Happy, actually. <laughs> and um, he knew where to find a rare Rafflesia species. Uh, for those who don't know, Rafflesia is um, contain- it's a genus that contains the largest single flowers in the world. Um, but there's a species in northern Sumatra called Rafflesia micropylora, which is endemic specifically to the north of the island in the Losa ecosystem. And yeah, I, we got a call from him um, uh, sort of to the lodge where I was staying and he was saying, oh, it's flowering. Do I want to see it? And of course I said yes. So I jumped on the back of a motorbike, um, no helmet or anything. <laughs> <laughs> There's a surprise. <laughs> um, with all my camera gear and yeah, I just went to see this amazing flower with him and i think that's the beauty of not planning sometimes you just get yeah you little, can react yeah. to, to little these projects levels. like that yeah that we, we, we probably yeah. may have to mention your camera gear towards the end of the episode oh, as yeah. well <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously you mentioned in passing there there's quite a lot of ecotourism in, in the one of the places that you went how did you find sort of the uh the attitudes, I guess, towards ecotourism whilst you're out there in, in Sumatra, from both like the locals and the people who who are out there with you um, on similar trips. Yeah, because when we did the ecotourism episode, we talked about the good and the bad of ecotourism, and there's good side to it, yeah, there's a bad how, side to it. There's a balance between the is, some places that really um, make sure that the locals are incorporated yeah, into yeah. the ecotourism, and they're not sort of being shunned. And to it's one not side just a profit-making and, you know, exercise for the actual uh, travel companies and stuff like that. So. That that was an important part yeah. of our episode is trying to work out which companies and and uh, eco tourism that was done well um, and trying to actually explain that. So yeah, so there's definitely good and bad in Sumatra. Um, so Bukit Lawang is um, a place where you're basically guaranteed to see orangutans, and that's mainly because the orangutans there are habituated. 
So right. I'm quite used to people. Yeah. A lot of those individual orangutans um, were originally wild, and then they were captured for illegal trade, and then they were rescued, and then rehabilitated and released again. But they haven't lost that connection with people. Right, so still see, very, some, very see, sometimes that habituation is a good thing, and sometimes it's a bad thing. Well, I'll tell you why it's bad. Yeah. Um, but yes, that that is a good thing in a way, and also the fact that you're guaranteed to see them means that people will pay to go. Yeah. Um, it's not like you're looking for a, a tiger or something, which is near impossible. Yeah. yeah. So people aren't going to pay <laughs> lots of money and just see nothing. They they're sort of they've got that guarantee. Exactly, and it's uh, not just you know the the money pumped pumped into the sort of um, guiding community, but you know tourists have to stay somewhere as well so the local businesses that run family based lodges and things like that are benefiting as well and the restaurants and uh, farmers who produce the food for the restaurants yeah. and so on <clears throat> yeah because so, we found examples as well of of you know people that were poachers being retrained to become guides and that was a really good news story on yeah. various uh, various locations and areas that we talked about well actually um, um and that guy, was a good thing the the guide happy i was talking about he was a former hunter yeah and um he was just amazing at seeing things in the forest well that's the thing they yeah. have the knowledge of the <laughs> of the forest and the animals and the you know that the, the the habits yeah. of the animals yeah. so they're also going to pick up on all the little signs exactly and, and so like that really, so they made really well. made fantastic guides you know? yes so. exactly yeah. and it's good that you know quite a few of them have a change of mindset now um in showing people wildlife just because they want to see it rather yeah. than eat it or something yeah. you know <laughs> but you talk also about um you know tourists visiting and obviously they've got to build an infrastructure on that that was another thing that we we touched on is you know sometimes that's a bad thing as well where they'll do a huge complex yeah. and hotels and clear areas to build areas for tourists to arrive as opposed to the small you know roughing it tents in the in the jungle and all of that kind of thing well, so, found... so how did you find that in Sumatra well if I go back to the book at Lawang which is the orangutan central sort yeah. of area um I think they've found a nice balance. They still have sort of lodges yeah. as opposed to hotels and things. Yeah. And it doesn't encroach on the forest. Um, and I think because of the orangutans, the people just see the forest as being very valuable now. Yeah. Um, so that education as well, that education side of it, educating people to just how important it is, is a really is a really important thing. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and just to bring it back to the orangutans, obviously you mentioned. Um, how the habituation of these orangutans that have gone through quite a cycle of being caught for illegal trade and then rescued, then released, but are still sort of part of the ecotourism. Obviously, you mentioned how the habituation, whilst it might guarantee tourists a view of them, isn't necessarily a good thing. Yeah. Um, so when you've got quite a powerful animal, such as an orangutan, who's not afraid of people, and will be, you know come within a metre of a visitor uh, I think inevitably conflict is going to happen at some point um, usually due to people rather than the orangutan usually yeah. due to people being stupid or, or maybe or getting not too stupid, close but, yeah. but not not just the visitors the guides as well right um, some guides are better than others yeah in understanding that for example you shouldn't feed these yeah. orangutans um, so well, my guide was 
you know, good at the time. And he um, understood that we need to keep a distance because um, in the past there's been incidents of one particular female orangutan uh, sort of grabbing tourists by the arm. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen or heard of primates bartering with people. Yeah, I think they did it in the most we saw recent an, we, Planet yeah, Earth. They did, they? yeah. Yes, uh, they were. Gra- I think it was. They grabbed phones and they were grabbing flops. phones and <laughs> yeah. not giving the phones back until they got certain yeah. food given to yeah, them. And these it had to be a small monkeys yeah, in comparison. Yeah, of to, course, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it's basically that, but they're using the person <laughs> instead right, of bartering. Yeah, that's quite extreme, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so there's actually quite a viral video. I think it's got um, like over 20 million views from Book of Wow. on YouTube. Um, it was a, a particular female who became very brave. Um, and she had a baby on her at the time as well. And you just see her holding on to this uh, lady's arm and not letting go. And they're pretty powerful animals yeah, aren't I think they? people because yeah. you always you always associate things like um, like chimpanzees with aggression for example yeah. whereas I think um, orangutans definitely have the reputation of a being more very gentle, gentle yeah. ape but I don't think people necessarily appreciate just how strong yeah. how strong they are in comparison to us yeah so my my guide at the time his name's Chi Chi they have lovely names he's yeah. <laughs> um, happy and Chi Chi yeah. yeah. <laughs> he um he told me, like, when I open my bag to get my camera or open my bag for anything else, do it behind a tree so they can't see you <laughs> right. doing it. Otherwise, they might come to you. Right, okay. <laughs> Just because people have fed them in the past. And that's the danger of feeding wild animals. Um, well, and it is the danger, I guess, of that habituation process as well, isn't it, where they're not afraid to come and have a little a little go at you. So Yeah, but I'd, yeah, I'd recommend looking at that video. Yeah. I, if you typed in Bukit Lawang orangutan, yeah, well, I'm sure we can find it. Stick a link. If it's in. got that many views, yeah. then it will be yeah, it will come up. In. We'll yeah. stick a link, yes. um, and so people yeah. can go and have a look at, at what an example of, yeah. of animals being a little bit too comfortable with, with yeah. people. And then the trouble is, in order to get the orangutan off, you got to feed it to get it off. Yeah, and it's just, a, just cycle. a cycle of bad things happening. <laughs> so you you say that they they seem to have got quite a good balance. Um, with the ecotourism so that means again the local people are being looked after and the funding is being used in the right way to protect the forest and the animals and yeah i mean i guess six weeks probably doesn't give you a huge amount of time to get a full um a, you know a full idea of that how that's working but yeah well i was in book at lawang specifically for three weeks yeah and then i went to another village called katambe for um i think i was there for two weeks um, but Bukit Lawang is like a good example because that's where most people go yeah. in Sumatra. Um, and yeah, I think the only way it could become a problem is if government corruption comes in uh, because that's, oh dear. that is rife in yeah. Indonesia. <laughs> yeah, I did um, read a little bit about that. Like I say, like I was saying to you before we started the podcast when we were just having lunch, uh, as I was doing the research, I did find it a little bit... <laughs> disheartening on the things that were going on in Indonesia in that respect. Yeah, and, well, it seems Sumatra in particular, um, because of the old uh, drive for palm oil. Yeah. It's just like... And it's massive, and it's mm. being driven by some huge global brands. Exactly, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not going to sound out, even though you maybe sound out the Hilton Hotel chain yeah. the other day. <laughs> but, I mean, it's all... I mean, it's important for us to know, obviously... Um, 
government corruption is rife in in most places i mean yeah pretty much worldwide really it's just when you've got something like the some of the rainforests out there and and being an island obviously it's it's got a huge number of endemic species as well and so it it really does ramp up the value of these habitats i've got a stat do you know i like stats you do you do like a stat it says despite indonesia and this is indonesia as a whole obviously sumatra is just one of the islands i think the largest island the sixth largest largest island. island In the world? I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, sorry, sixth largest island in the world, largest in Indonesia. I've got a stat saying, despite Indonesia only making up 1% of the Earth's land area, its rainforests are home to 10% of the entire world's known plant species, 12% of all mammal species, and 17% of all known bird species. Yeah, which is incredible. That's a big stat, isn't it? It is a big stat. Um, And I think that's what happens when you have... A huge archipelago near the equator. <laughs> yeah, it's just a laboratory for speciation, really. Seventeen thousand islands, apparently. Yeah, yeah. And to be fair, I think it seems were, like a huge amount of islands to me. But. Yeah, and you were saying that every island seems to have something special about it, as far as yeah. the wildlife goes, um, which is one of the reasons why I think you actually said on the way here, Indonesia is one of your favourite places in the world. And you've yeah. obviously got a lot more of it to explore, I guess, because I guess you've only seen a fraction of it. Well, even Sumatra, um, I want to go back there to see the West yeah. province. Um, that's got like, a lot of volcanic activity. And with that comes endemic species that live in the tops of these mountains. Yeah. And Incredible got, biodiversity. Yeah, yeah, it's just yeah, it's just endless, really. I don't yeah. think you could see everything in Indonesia in your lifetime. <laughs> yeah, amazing, amazing. <laughs> yeah. But obviously it needs some serious protection because... Those uh, those animals, the tigers, elephants, orangutans and rhinos, particularly in Sumatra, are under huge threats, aren't they? Well, going back to the palm oil situation, um, you know, uh, the, the specific type of forest that it's replaced is lowland forest. Yeah. Um, and that's a big issue for certain species like elephants. Yeah. Um, because they depend on lowland forests and riverine forests um, and all of the sort of national <coughs> protected national parks in the north uh at sort of higher elevation yeah where people can't utilize it they can't log it or grow stuff on it cause yeah. it's just too awkward um so things like tigers orangutans and so on are moving up into these hills where where they're safer and the habitat's more suitable but things like elephants they don't want to do that <laughs> yeah of course yeah um well not only because they're so big yeah and, you know getting a big animal up there a large Mountain. hill is quite quite tricky. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what they've evolved to live in, is lowland forest. And pretty much all of it is gone. And it's just palm oil now. There are fragments left. Um, but this is leading to like a huge amount of conflict between elephants and people. Yeah. Because the elephants are turned to crops for food and people are sort of, you know, resorting to poisoning, electric fences and things. Stories that we read from all over these places really yeah um well see that being said with the the lowland uh rainforests disappearing and the elephant struggling you did manage to see the Sumatran elephant i did that was a real privilege that's probably one of the rarest things i've seen um and it was a herd of about 10 elephants right and so basically from bukit lawang you know we got um a call from another village about three hours away uh sort of off-roading sort of roads to get there. A bit rough then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was so rough. 
<laughs> and you're sort of going over makeshift bridges made out of wood from the forest. Over, a we've seen of, a few Top Gear episodes yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, there's supposedly a herd of elephants there. They're inhabiting this sort of um, this area that's half rainforest, half abandoned plantation. Right. Is that a palm oil plantation? Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, so the vegetation is very low there, and so you can like see the elephants. Yeah, little glimpse. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we basically went to this the top of this big hill within the abandoned plantation so we could look down on the elephants um, and then they're more likely to come out into view. Um, and these are like wild elephants, which is great because in a lot of places in Indonesia, Southeast Asia, you know, people say they've seen elephants, but they're usually captive in some way or yeah. habituated or something like that. But um, yeah, so we waited at the top of this hill for about half an hour and then suddenly you hear like, the trumpeting of the uh, male, um, the tusked male. Um, and then you hear the sort of crackling of the trees. Sounds a bit Jurassic Park, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, A lot of T-Rex appears well, I, I never, the foliage. I'd never experienced a wild elephant before. So for me, it was just beyond belief, really. <laughs> yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we just waited in anticipation as we hear these footsteps going through the forest. And then eventually you see... One of the females pops out, and then one of the babies pops out. But they're they're not like African elephants, where they um. So obviously, African elephants live in the savannas and open plains, most of them anyway. Um, these ones are very secretive, right? And they sort of um, I, I guess I could compare it to like a skulking bittern. Oh, <laughs> right, quite elusive. <laughs> yeah, quite difficult to actually yeah. see. But because of this open area that they've got used to coming to, and no one's planting on it anymore they're sort of taking the fresh leaves from, from this oh, okay. area so it's sort of almost re- not necessarily recovering but at least it's still providing them with yeah, useful so habitat and food it's basically this abandoned um, plantation and then a wall of jungle right and they're emerging from the jungle to come and feed in this area did you manage to get shots yeah, yeah. I think uh, they're, they're already on your Instagram actually aren't they yeah, uh, not not all of them. Yeah, or maybe I saw that. I, I might be thinking, obviously, while you're out there, you're sticking them on your story. I've got plenty of video. Yeah, and a few stills as well. They were quite far away, but when you've got an animal that big, yeah, you can crop yeah. them yeah. quite nicely. Yeah, out of interest, in comparison <coughs> to like the African elephant, Indian elephant, what is the size between? Like, where do they sit as far as scale of elephants? I am well. I believe they're similar size to the Indian elephant. Okay, because they are a subspecies of Asian elephant. Yeah. So they're smaller than an African elephant. But still um, quite a large animal. <laughs> but yeah, still big. Um, and I, Well, I've got to mention, as we were walking up to the viewing area, you see signs of elephants everywhere. So you see their footprints, which are like bigger than your average dinner plate. <laughs> <laughs> um, just like a big circular print. Um, and also elephant dung, which is like, you know, almost football size. <laughs> <laughs> so um, quite hard to miss. Yeah, it was just incredible. And you could see we were basically walking in their footsteps because they, they're quite nocturnal as well. Right. So at night is when they're more active, actually. And um, yeah, th- those signs were probably created at night time when no one was around. And but anyway, yeah. So we sat there and watched these elephants for about an hour. Let's say one, you know, one after one emerged from the forest. Um, and then eventually the the adult male 
of the herd came out with the big tusks and um yeah it's just incredible uh and i remember looking at the the ivory and thinking like how much demand there is for that you know material on his face yeah <laughs> it's just like it's just good to see one that you know still alive and well and and there's obviously, I mean, they are a threatened species and they're obviously under huge pressure, aren't they, in Sumatra? Yeah. So, I, amazingly for me, I don't have a stat about their decline. I normally have stats. Mm. Um, I just keep reading about, you know, how critically endangered they are. Um, well, I think numbers-wise, there's about 3,000-odd left. Right. <clears throat> but most of those are living on the edge of humanity. Yeah. Where they're coming into conflict. Yeah, and like, as you just mm. yeah mentioned, um, obviously they're... They're coming into conflict with us, and that's that's not never a good thing. Yeah, because it's well not only dangerous for the elephants, but for people as sure. well. And um, there's always a bigger uproar when a person is killed rather than an elephant. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be that way. Well, I mean, obviously, you, you see that sort of um, situation with sharks. Obviously, it's probably the most famous one. Like, I can't remember the exact numbers, but the number of people who die from shark attacks each year is minuscule. Yeah, and yeah. we wipe out a huge amount, but yeah. you only ever hear the uproar. Obviously, when it's when it's the animal taking on a human, <laughs> for yeah. obvious reasons, it's very uh, media headline grabby mm-hmm. news. But it does lend itself to being quite a biased story of the actual situation. I think uh, sort of implies that the the animal threat to humanity is perhaps exaggerated in comparison to our threat to them. Exactly. Yeah. And um, going back to the sort of um, the north of the island where most of the protected areas are situated. <clears throat> Um, that's mainly because of the megafauna, right? So the yeah. orangutans, elephants, rhinos, tigers, there's, there's tigers there as well, and most of the funding for conservation goes there. And then this is where I learned from Pungi, my contact out there, who's based in South Sumatra. He's saying they barely get any funding down there, right? Because they don't have those big animals big anymore, charismatic animals, yeah. Which is really sad because you still, well, I say that like recently actually. He did a project where he did some camera trapping in um, one of the few protected areas in South Sumatra. And he was finding sun bears, clouded leopards. Um, so there's still, you know... Top, Charismatic animals there. That... Top, well, important predators yeah. as well. And that's quite a big achievement um, in South Sumatra because no one knew they were there. <laughs> right. Which is always the danger, mm. isn't it? Because if you don't know they're there, they don't get the funding, then you don't even know what you've lost. Yeah, exactly. Until so it's already gone. From yeah. this camera trap footage, hopefully he can, you know, demand more funding. <laughs> yeah, put for... a bit of a case forward for for the low for the southern parts of the country as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that does seem to be the 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 emphasis when I was again doing the research that most of the funding seems to be aimed at looser and that yes. ecosystem up there. Um, Global conservation progress um, from the globalconservation.org, I think, was a um, was founded to protect that area in particular, and they've just secured some huge funding. But it is all for the north. Yeah, but you see, I mean, you see it all the time. A lot of conservation organisations will have a poster animal, yeah. and it is normally you know a panda yeah. or a tiger or something. Whereas really, the valuable thing would be to fund and conserve the entire habitat. But it's a lot less easy to get people excited about saving uh, just a generic jungle yeah. without having save the elephant yeah uh, whereas, or the orangutan or the yeah. orangutan whereas obviously all of these jungles even if you don't have cloud leopards sun bears and 
or those uh, charismatic larger animals, you've still got all sorts of reptiles, invertebrates. I mean, we can go on to talk about the orchid life out there oh, as yeah. well. As you say, the flora and fauna is incredible. Yeah, I mean, we're um, obviously very, not necessarily biased, but have a tendency to talk about the animals, but some of the plant life out there mm-hmm. is not only interesting as far as biology, but also as far as the culture. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the orchids yeah. in in particular. Fifteen thousand known plants and many more species yet to be discovered. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea that orchid hunting, illegal orchid hunting, was, was a, a thing, thing yeah. until I had a yeah. with Josh about it. Yeah, oh, should we go on to that now? Then? Yeah, yeah, might as well. Yeah, let's segue into some plants. Yeah, so um, where do I start? Really, it's quite a complex issue with orchids in Sumatra. Um, so, as I was saying, uh, my contact out there is primarily a botanist. And he works, he does a lot of his work in orchid conservation. Uh, there's a lot of sort of specialist orchids in Sumatra. And he was basically telling me that there's <laughs> like orchid mafia groups. <laughs> basically have territories of orchid hunting simply because they're so valuable to, to sell to the Western world. Yeah, see, I never knew that. No, I didn't either. <clears throat> and um, yeah, so he said people have died over you Incredible. Know, disputes to to get the rarest orchid or um, to have a particular territory in which to, to hunt them. So are they being are they being exported all over the world? Or is it just the West that's the, got the demand for them? Um, well, it's all over the world. Yeah. But I would be very careful about, you know, trying to find out if you do keep orchids in this country, where they come from. <laughs> what do you mean? To, don't even Google it. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's some that are fine. Yeah. But from what I've been told, there's a lot of sort of dodgy exports in Sumatra wow. and out of Indonesia that go to the Western world. And it just gets covered up and no one knows where these orchids came from. I think we need to stop this conversation right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that was a bit eye-opening. Um, and not only that, I actually met an orchid hunter. Uh, I went to his house. <laughs> okay. Because um, uh, Pungi is doing the conservation out there. He's sort of gone the good side of this hunter. And the hunter has become more open to the conservation aspects of orchids. So like we were talking about mm. with the poachers becoming guides, yeah, it's a similar, similar thing. Similar, yeah, because yeah. they're still going to know yeah, the best where spots. to find them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's another thing. Um, these orchid hunters are actually describing, new, not describing, but finding new species all the time because no one goes to the depths that they go to into the highest mountains. There's so many more to be discovered as well, I guess. Yeah, so I actually saw an undescribed orchid that he'd collected. And he, he's got like this outdoor greenhouse yeah. where he keeps them all. And eventually he'll sell them. But Pungi, because he's he's become, he's got a good relationship with him, we were allowed to go in and see his facility. And it's just beautiful orchids all over the place. Um, and... Yeah, Pungi was just telling me that this particular one we were looking at, just no one knows what it is. Wow. <laughs> I think to be like new. when we had a chat, obviously mm. it's, it's very difficult for an academic to acquire funding and permits and everything to go out exactly. to the middle of a jungle just to try and find yeah. some new yeah. species. Whereas if they're out there looking for them all the time, it's no wonder that they're stumbling yeah, across ones yeah. that just aren't described by any scientist. Mm. Um, they just have them on their doorstep. But it's just its a shame that but, we haven't got the facilities out there to describe them. But they, they'd be the perfect guide yeah. to take someone like that yeah. into the mountains or whatever. Um, so is that actually happening, that transition? Or <coughs> is that, has that hasn't quite gone from 
poacher to tour guide from orchid hunter to orchid guide is that not quite well this is quite a rare occurrence yeah, yeah. and obviously Pungi's very happy about it yeah um because other hunters that he's tried to communicate with just won't say a word yeah of course <laughs> yeah. it's their livelihood i guess and well, they're also probably run by like you say mafia bosses aren't they so yeah and they they're scared of being arrested and even though he doesn't have the power to do that they just yeah worry about going to jail basically yeah yeah um but yeah it's just like an easy income for people who live in rural parts of sumatra but what pungi's doing with this um this particular hunter who's open to communication is he's sort of you know teaching him about the impacts of over collecting orchids yeah and um finding alternative sources of income so this hunter has now started farming fish on his okay. land yeah. uh, to make some money from that. Yeah. Um, and I think eventually he'll sort of spread out to different sort of crops and things and produce that he could sell instead of collecting these rare orchids. Um, Which again is, to be fair, something we <clears> spoke about in the ecotourism episode, isn't it? A lot of these activities that are potentially damaging, whether it's logging or poaching or orchid hunting, are, they are doing it because they have to do it. Yeah, of course, and so it's yeah. then trying to find yeah. and provide an alternative income source. Um, I mean, the, the trap is still hunting, but he's doing it less. <laughs> yeah, which is still a step in the right direction. Yeah. And um, yeah, like going back to finding new species, this chap probably goes to an area where he's the only person who's been there. <laughs> wow yeah. um there's been multiple new species yeah. that they've found the hunters so yeah it's just yeah crazy um but also punky has a greenhouse but he's growing these orchids to eventually put back into the wild oh well, that's a good thing so it's kind of funny he has to collect a sample from the wild to then breed in captivity yeah and then once he's got a certain uh, number of orchids of a particular species He'll uh, put them back into the wild. Um, but <laughs> the trouble is with orchids in Sumatra and most tropical areas, they're epiphytes. So they grow really high <laughs> right. in the trees. Yeah. So whenever a tree falls... I didn't know what that meant. No, I didn't, to be fair. <laughs> and I have a degree in so all the garden, what that means. <laughs> it's basically a plant that grows on a bigger plant. Yeah. 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 Um, so like many ferns are epiphytes as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so... Uh, he's got contacts in various villages in South Sumatra that let him know when a large tree has fallen in yeah. the forest because he can then come along and see what orchids are on it. Oh, okay. But he's got to do it quickly yeah. because they'll soon die in that environment. They're not designed to be in the, yeah. on the forest yeah, yeah. floor. <clears throat> so I actually joined him to do that. Um, there was a big tree that had fallen in uh, Benkulu province and... Yeah, it was just covered in orchids. <laughs> so it wasn't a race by the hunters to get there first? Is that, is well, that I don't thing? think they knew about no. it. Okay. No. Um, yeah, I think Punky's quite careful about who he... <laughs> who so he you've, you've learned quite a lot about um, not only the, the flora, the fauna, the wildlife in Sumatra, but also... also the issues out there surrounding it also. That, yeah. You learned quite a lot in six weeks, didn't you? Yes, and um, I could have stayed there for another, yeah. I think. <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's some very bad parts about it, but some amazing stuff as well. But uh... Yeah, um, going back to the um, funding for conservation, um, another issue that happens in Sumatra is because it's so rife with um, 
corruption. Uh, international funders are reluctant to give money to s- sort of small-time conservationists. Yeah. yeah. Because they don't trust them, basically. Yeah, they don't really know where what, what it's actually going to go and do or what they're using it for. But for someone like Ponky, who is a genuine conservationist, it's just devastating. Like. Yeah, it must be so frustrating. <laughs> but that's always yeah. going to be a problem, by the saying that all the time there's corruption in the country. That's yeah. never going to change, is it? So they only trust the NGOs, which, yeah. as I said, are in the north mode, mostly. Yeah. But going forward, maybe, hopefully, with some of the work he's doing out there with camera traps and, and sort of uh, proving the value of the southern habitats, yep. maybe he can start bringing some of the NGOs. If, if he can't bring the funding directly, maybe he can bring some of the NGO interest down into down into the south. I think it's needed, yeah. yeah. Um, especially now that he's found those, uh, those animals on the camera traps. Um, that's quite a big deal. Yeah. Um, but he also does um, visits to schools. Oh, okay, so he's providing some of the educational side yeah. of, of um, so conservation. If you talk to most um, sort of middle-aged people in Sumatra, they just don't even understand the concept of protecting species and, and things like that, and you just can't change their mind. Yeah, I guess it hasn't really been a priority for them, has yeah. it? Yeah, um, especially if you know you're relatively poor and any source of income is to chop down a forest and put some plantation there or something but um by teaching the next generation it's so important to change in that attitude i think it's so that's the only way really yeah to help sumatra but um also um i guess if there wasn't uh so much corruption you could do more ecotourism as well yeah and do you think that will change because obviously we spoke i spoke about um last week once the ecotourism sort of takes off governments can recognize the uh economic value of that industry do you think as more people start showing off the wildlife of sumatra and ecotourism gets better that governments may start to recognize the importance well i think it's i think it's growing in the north with the um book for example yeah but it's all it's all concentrated there. It needs to be more dispersed throughout the island. Um, but the problem is, a lot of the forests in the south are gone. <laughs> right. So it's a bit late to sort of market it as an ecotourism if you're not necessarily going to actually see anything. <laughs> yeah, but there. I mean, there are there are fragments left, which um, there's a particular area that's quite reliable to see Rafflesia. Rafflesia arnoldi, which is the biggest flower in the world. Yeah. And um, that seems to bring in a lot of sort of um, local tourists, right? Like okay, Ind- Indonesian people. But if they were able to promote that, like they do in Bukit Lawang, I think um, getting more international tourists would be very beneficial. Yeah, it, international- it is possible also to restore that's, yeah, that's rainforest. Cool. There's yeah. been lots of examples of palm oil plantations that have been restored yeah and obviously we mentioned I, I keep referencing the last episode but it, it was sort of the tee up to this but we we spoke about costa rica and yes. how the forest cover has increased yeah, so yeah. there is that opportunity yeah that's to that's yeah that's reforest what I, we would hope isn't it like, that's like you the were saying, ideal standard you were saying if the government can see the uh you know the the value of ecotourism that maybe they'll maybe they'll yeah, change direction sort of the um yeah like the blue sky idea isn't it it's it's a lot it's it's what you'd love to see yeah it's a long way off by the sounds of it but yeah I, th- I think if it wasn't for such a corrupt government um you know people in these villages would be on board with the whole yeah ecotourism yeah idea 
but in order to survive they have to do things that are bad for the environment yeah i mean we obviously touched on quite a few um you know difficult areas of your visit to hmm. sumatra but we do like to include some positives as well yeah, don't I mean, we? and i know to... the only the only problem i've got is that i found some positives but they are as you've again alluded to mostly concentrated on the north of the island but that is still better than there not being any and obviously josh has also mentioned that um <clears throat> one of his guides was an ex-hunter yeah and you've also got um okay he's still orchid hunting but there's still a, he's starting to work with conservationists um you've also got yeah obviously the conservationists going and chatting to people in schools so there's still a lot of yeah. positives i think to pull out i've got of. a few little positives here okay do you want to rattle some more uh, but mainly came from the globalconservation.org site actually which is a um, which was a was founded to protect um, the most important endangered wild spaces, not just in Sumatra but many areas of the globe actually. And they came up with um, in the past three years the conservation progress in Sumatra. There's a little list. You want me to list them? Yeah, go on. So building two new uh, local NGOs with over 140 field staff for conservation and patrols. They stopped a major road building plan uh, in a project called Roads to Nowhere, closed 24 illegal plantations, 36 illegal logging operations, and restored 30-plus illegal palm oil plantations to natural forest, deployed 100-plus strong anti-poaching patrols, making multiple arrests, New wildlife-focused conservation programs for rhino, tigers, orangutan, and elephants, including the establishment of a new megafauna sanctuary. Um, international lobbying, securing support from the EU, USA, and other nations. National recognition and public petitions with over 1.1 million signatures for funding for Sumatra. Um, securing new funding from Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. Do we know anything about him? We know he's an actor. I didn't realise he, he had a had foundation, foundation that was... I know he, he has donated a lot of money to various um, projects around right. the world. I think he's done some Amazonian stuff as well. Well, he's obviously, they've obviously mm. secured funding for Sumatra from that foundation, which is a good thing, mm. and the establishment of new major new wildlife corridors and buffer areas, which I was reading about, actually. Again, I think in uh, in the north, I think that was primarily. But mm-hmm. um, Yeah. Um, so there are, some, there are some positives, and we've mentioned it many, many times. In fact, we mentioned it probably every episode that we do is that in the background that you don't read so much about the positive things and see all the hard work and not just from NGOs but from the local people uh, individual well. people as well you mentioned your um you know people that you've mentioned today that are actually trying to save the orchids and educate restore and next. educate and yeah. and all these things going on in the background albeit on a probably on a scale that isn't impacting as much as we'd like it to, but they they are there. Those people are there, trying to save the orangutans, the gorillas that we mentioned when we were talking about ecotourism last episode. And there's so many people and so many small organisations that are battling away, trying to make changes and save environments. It's that for me. I always find heartwarming and i always find all the time that there are those people Hmm. and i think education is a massive thing it's educating the younger generation because ultimately they're the ones that are going to save the planet um or try and save the planet and so that education is a hugely important thing and um so i'm always you've mentioned people today in this episode and i'm always 
really um, encouraged by the fact that there are always someone trying to save, you know, the orchids, the yeah. orangutans, the rhinos, the yeah, and there's there's more you know? there's more conservationists than um, what I mentioned, but Pungi is um, probably the most willing to put his stuff out there on yeah. the net and stuff like yeah. that, you know. So um, so fantastic. To he's hear good about, at raising awareness. Fantastic to hear about people like that. <coughs> you know, that's that's heartwarming. We like yeah, a bit we, of heartwarming, we do. don't we? Um, oh, I forgot to mention. Did you know there's two species of orangutan on Sumatra? I didn't know that. <laughs> so. Um, I think it was as of 2017. Um, yeah, they found orangutans in an area of Sumatra called Tapanuli uh, are actually genetically distinct. Oh, okay. And their own species. Wow. It's called the Tapanuli orangutan, endemic to a tiny area of forest. See, I thought there yeah. were only two places in the world you could see orangutans, or orangutans now survived, and that was northern Sumatra and Borneo. Yeah, but there's two species on in northern Sumatra. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's incredible. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think at the moment there's a bit of a a struggle at the moment because uh, in the Tapanuli area where these orangutans live, there's a proposal to build a hydroelectric dam or something. Yeah, right. Or it's wait, is it? I can't remember exactly what it is now. Right. But basically, it's going to be damaging, and. This orangutan lives in a very tiny fragment of forest, um, so hopefully that doesn't go ahead. Did you see them? <laughs> Do you saw orangutans when you were there? Uh, I saw Sumatran orangutan, yeah, but not Tapanuli. Did I, you... I didn't go to that area. Did I can only it? ever th- I can only ever think of King Louis out of Jungle yeah. Book. <laughs> <laughs> That's as close as I've got to to an orangutan. Yeah, yeah, oh, and they're... he was pretty cool actually. Yeah. They're lovely, and well, actually, going from Bukit Lawang where the orangutans are quite habituated to Katambe, yeah. which is deeper into the uh, Losa ecosystem. Yeah. The orangutans behave completely differently. That, yeah. I, was gonna, I couldn't mm. remember whether you had told me. I was going to ask if you had seen both the slightly more habituated population yeah. and the more wild population. So um, orangutans in Sumatra naturally don't really come to the ground very often. In Bukit Luang, they do all the time. Yeah. <laughs> You're being fed. <laughs> But if you go to Katambe, where they're more wild... They're just all up in the trees. Way up in the trees. Um, But uh, if you sort of climb the the highest hills in the jungle, you can get eye level with them. Oh, okay. I bet that's an amazing thing. Which is what we did. Um, So I went out... I think it might have been Christmas Day, actually. (laughs) Not a bad way to spend Christmas Day. That's a great way to spend Christmas Day. Well, I was just in a jungle of no internet on Christmas Day. And no roast turkey or anything. (laughs) No, <laughs> roast bananas instead. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I just I went out with um, so I had two guides there. Um, I did two separate uh, camping trips. Um, one's called Raja, goes by the name of Raja Katambe on um, socials, and one's called Safar, who goes by the name of Safar Katambe on socials. Right. <laughs> so if you want to look those up yeah. and fancy trying them out for yourselves. Um, you won't be disappointed. Um, but I was with Safara this time on Christmas Day. And uh, we went out for our usual walk in the afternoon just to see what was around. And we we could hear uh, the alpha male orangutan in the area calling. And he was just way up this massive hill. Uh, he wasn't singing, I'm the king of the swingers, though, was he? No, <laughs> it might have been. That would have been brilliant. If it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's quite an eerie noise, actually. Um, 
Yeah, I don't think I've really ever heard of no. even a recording of a no. orangutan's call. Yeah, like um, they just seem like quite quiet animals in general, but the males do call quite loudly. Yeah. Um, and uh, they they do it usually from a high point in the forest, so it travels, and all the females can hear him. Um, but unfortunately for him, I heard him. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so uh, Safar and I just followed the noise. Oh God, we walked up this hill, and I was just dripping with sweat. You know, being eaten alive by mosquitoes. Um, but eventually, we just like see this orange mass like moving in the trees. And a, a male, adult male orangutan is big. That must have been an amazing <laughs> really sight. Really big. Um, and obviously, he's got the wide face. Yeah. Which is typical of the older males. Um, and well, when he saw us, he stopped calling. But then he just started eating instead. <laughs> so uh, he wasn't bothered. But he, he moves a little bit. Um, but he actually moved into a place where he was easier to see, thankfully. Yeah. Which is how I got that photo. Um, that I showed you earlier of him doing the little hand chakra or something where yeah. you've got your thumb and your little finger out and he's just sticking out <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like a surfer or a jiu-jitsu sign actually mm. people stick their hands out like that yeah yeah and luckily so he for, was a bit of a dude yeah. yeah 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 and luckily for us he went a bit sort of down the slope so we were eye level with yeah. him, uh, on the top of this hill and I just sat there for about half an hour with this orangutan that must have been yeah, incredible experience him, yeah, yeah. And uh, wow, got... that's that's so memorable. You, that's something you'll never ever forget. Oh, honestly, yeah, it was brilliant, and a very um, he was like fully aware I was there. Yeah, but they're just so placid. Yeah, they're just so placid. Um, I wonder if that had been a silverback and you were on eye level with a silverback when he would running at you behaved <laughs> the same way. Probably not. Well, orangutans are interesting because they're the most arboreal grey tape. Yeah, so you're rarely going to see them on the ground. Yeah. Well, unless um, unless something dramatic happens in Sumatra and it's protected in a way that we've been talking about earlier, um, they're talking about it could be the very first great ape to be extinct. Mm. Well, the Tapanuli one in particular, yeah. that, that is officially the rarest primate. Yeah, which is such oh, a sad Oh, rarest thing. primate, not even great ape, just rarest primate. Uh, the Tapanuli yeah, one, yeah. Wow. Primate. yeah. Um, well, I mean, we've, we've covered a lot of the ecotourism, and I'm going to assume that the... Um, the elephants and orangutans probably up there. So excluding the elephant and orangutan, bearing in mind that I'm aware we've probably been chatting for a while, yeah. just <coughs> quickly, what were some of your other real wildlife sort of highlights beyond those two quite obvious choices? Hmm. Well, there's a couple that spring to mind and they're both herpetology related. Yeah, I know you saw a big reticulated python. Well, was that not one it was them? big, but... That's not a big one, if that makes oh, sense. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I was doing another night walk. I was basically looking for snakes every night. Um, like you do, yeah. Yeah, just hiking in the jungle. <laughs> um, and as I was doing that, we came across this small waterfall in the hills just behind Bukit Lawang. Um, so this is the busier area. But up in these hills, no one really goes there because it's quite difficult walking. Yeah. No one bothers. Uh, and there's a small waterfall and I was sort of wading up to my knees in water, uh, lovely clear water. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just panning around and I'm at the base of this waterfall, I turned to my right and I thought it was a log. <laughs> and then my torch <clears throat> caught it in a certain angle and it started shimmering with blues and greens. Like they're quite iridescent at times, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, the, the and then I, I sort of like panned my torch down the so-called log and saw that it had glowing orange eyes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
and yeah, I immediately obviously knew what that was. And um, it was just waiting at the bottom of this waterfall next to a pool. For you? <laughs> well, luckily it wasn't big enough to eat a human. Right. <laughs> it was about four meters, I'd yeah. say. Um, and yeah, I just sort of approached it and it, it was just waiting for like an animal to come have a drink, I think, yeah. or something like that. And it just didn't move. It, it flicked its tongue a couple of times and just stayed there. And the the photos I took are completely in in situ, like I did. Which is always always. So I realized I hopped in there. I don't know if that was one of your the two reptiles that was going to spring to mind for you. I hopped in just because I like reticulated pythons. <laughs> oh, there's a few. Um, but that was great to see one just going about its business undisturbed. Because yeah. often when you see photos online and um, you know videos online of people finding pythons, they either catching them or they're in someone's house or somewhere yeah. they shouldn't be <laughs> yeah to see a totally wild one yeah, yeah. just chilling going about its normal yeah. life and um yeah it probably doesn't get disturbed by people yeah and that's really nice i think um and also it's like i, I basically sat next to the python i was like a meter away from it what well, <laughs> selfie did you <laughs> <laughs> uh no but i just thought after photographing it and everything i just sat there and just looked at it and I just thought this is incredible, amazing, Surreal. exciting, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, to see one in situ like this. Um, and in, in Indonesia, it's one of the most feared animals. Is it a reticulated python because they do grow large enough to eat people? Yeah, wow. It's very rare. But so, how big have they got to get before they're going to eat something? Well, they can reach sort of seven meters, six, seven meters. That's a big snake. Um, so the one I saw was probably half grown. <laughs> yeah, which is yeah, it's, it's and just one sat, sat next to yeah. him. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, oh, it was incredible, and um, that that was one of them. Um, and in the same area, actually, this one isn't herp related, um, but I was herping. I was looking for snakes and things. Um, whenever you walk through Sumatran jungle and you see uh, sort of slow moving, glowing eyes in the canopy, it usually means one thing, and that's slow loris. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. <laughs> And, well, actually today I found out that it was probably the Sumatran slow loris. Right. Um, because I think there was a recent split. It used to be considered the Sunda slow loris, which occurs across Malaysia and um, I believe Borneo. And I think it still exists in um, Sumatra, but the Sumatran slow loris is endemic to the Losa ecosystem. Can you just explain what a slow loris is? <coughs> oh, sorry. It's, um, so it's, like it's a primitive primate it kind of right. not like a sloth no they, no. Look, they look a little bit more like um it's a bit like a lemur yeah i was gonna say oh, okay. yeah yeah um similar to a lemur um, i just used the word associated the word slow with the sloth <laughs> yeah. so i thought it might have been a sloth like yeah, yeah. animal but they, they don't have a tail right um but they have like the same sort of bones that we have in, okay. our, in our digits and you can see that when you see the photos yeah um and it's strictly nocturnal as well um, and it's venomous. It's um, oh, okay. One of the only venomous mammals, isn't it? I think the lorises, like the general family of lorises, are the only venomous primates. Oh, okay. Um, and the way they use it is really bizarre. Um, the venom glands are actually close to their elbows. <laughs> that is bizarre. And um, when they want to use it, uh, when they bite a intruder or, or something like that they'll mix their saliva with the venom from the gland, wow. uh, which is why they adopt this raised arm 
uh, yeah. position. Yeah. Which, you know, has gone sort of viral on the internet as being cute. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's not. But it's not. It can yeah. actually be quite dangerous. Yeah. And just um, how venomous is that? Uh, it's a good question. I was trying to figure that out myself yeah. yesterday. Um, well, not, not while you were encountering it, though. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> there's not many reported bites, really. Right. Um, but there is one solid sort of um, uh, paper on a, on a bite inflicted by the biologist who wrote the paper. Right. <laughs> um, and it caused quite severe anaphylaxis. Oh, okay. So it can be quite dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously different people will react differently yeah. to the venom yeah. so yeah it could potentially be fatal if you had a bad reaction wow mm. um but most people are bitten when they're you know you're handling them in some way so yeah yeah you're not often you know crawling around the jungle at night really they don't you? just so... jump on you from the trees no. and <laughs> bite your neck <laughs> so i also know that you you like a spider or two don't you so did you encounter any good spiders out there yeah um because how many spiders have you got currently Oh, my captive ones. Yeah. I've got 15 yeah. so or so like, tarantulas. You're like an arachnid, don't you? Yeah, I, I gave him my uh, my <laughs> Brazilian black beauty, yeah. my grandma Stola Polka. Yeah. She is a beauty. Yeah, she is lovely. <laughs> so, um, do, yeah, encounter any good arachnids out there? Well, the first one that springs to mind is, um, it's called a lichen huntsman spider. Oh, the photo uh, of that is stunning as well. It's an incredible picture. Yeah, uh, I think it's, it's in the genus Heteropoda, which is, um, I believe they're, mainly Southeast Asian huntsman spiders. And this is Heteropoda bowii, I think you pronounce it. And the colours are incredible, as you say. Yeah. Sort of um, mossy greens and reds and burgundies. And it's also rather long-legged. <laughs> and Well, yeah, it was as big as my hand. We, we will put the link to Josh's Instagram page yes. because you'll see a lot of these go, pictures on there yeah we've only yeah. really scratched the surface yeah. we've actually seen yeah and you go and have a little look at some of the because there's some amazing photographs on there so so check it out yeah and i haven't finished nowhere near finished posting them no so. you never <laughs> we've never finished i'm the same with my bird <laughs> photography you're the same with your macro photography you never really finish because no you no. know i've got thirty-two thousand bird pictures to go through that being said <laughs> so. your photography was cut a bit short um, oh right, yes, we right we, at the end. We, of the did, trip. we did mention oh, yeah. your. <laughs> We'd be remiss if we didn't. Slight calamity with your <laughs> photographic gear. Do you want to say exactly what happened? Yeah, well, I was going to say uh, talk about a few more species. Oh yeah, saw, okay, please do. And then, yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. do that. Um, but sticking on arachnids, it was actually a scorpion, um, Heterometris scorpion, which is commonly kept in the pet trade right. captivity. It's yeah. a big forest scorpion. Yeah, isn't it? large. They're called Asian forest scorpions. It's like your go-to starter scorpion, if you want. Very to. venomous? No, oh, not okay. particularly. But mechanically, you can cause quite a bad yeah. nip. Yeah, they're yeah. very impressive. <laughs> but not like your little scorpion that you kept when you were living no. at home. It no, was, was about the size of your thumbnail. Yeah, that was tiny. Yeah, But that, that scorpion was also about the size of my hand. Like, yeah. Pretty huge. Yeah. Um, and I've seen many of them in captivity, but seeing one in the wild yeah. is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so no tarantulas or anything out there? I saw a a tarantula, a juvenile one, but I couldn't uh, tease it out of its burrow, so I couldn't really see oh, it. Oh, you were trying? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Normally if you, um, you, you smack like a, a pair of tweezers <coughs> and it, it vibrates and you stick it on the web, mm. they, they come running out. People yeah. use tuning forks. Yeah, and for you'd, it, obviously like want, you'd obviously want to do that. Yeah. You know, why wouldn't you want to tease <laughs> out a tarantula? You want to get a nice look at it. Yeah. yeah. That was good fun. Uh, <laughs> And um, 
there was also yeah two two herbs to finish off on this on this topic um the malayan horned frog or, oh, okay. or long nose we love a frog. frog uh yeah huge frog i'd say about 11 centimeters in length it's basically got all these pointy projections on its body to blend in with the leaf litter yeah so it's practically invisible until it like moves or it calls um and that was incredible and it's got these sort of like as the name suggests, these long horns above the eyes. Um, that one is posted on online, so you can see that one if you want. <laughs> um, and then there was also the um, Sumatran palm viper, which is endemic to the island. Um, and from my research, it doesn't seem like many foreigners have seen it before. I can only find a handful of records. Um, so that's an amazing thing, isn't it? You know yeah. that you've seen something that so few people have seen. Yeah, and it only seems to occur in the Loser ecosystem. Wow. Um, so How exciting. I bet that was really exciting. Yeah, it was incredible. It was... <laughs> is that the one you almost stepped on? No, that was a different one. Oh, okay. Um, but th- this one was in a precarious place, actually. It was on a log that we had to climb over to get to the forest trail. So right. we had to be quite careful. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was sort of resting on a ledge on the side of the log. Right. With its head pointing up waiting for a lizard or something yeah. to come along. So, if you so put you your kept hand... your eyes pretty firmly on that. You when don't want to put your hand there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially being so far away from medical care. Yeah. That would have been a bad one, would it, if you'd have been bitten by that one? Well, it's, in... well, it's definitely venomous, but... Well, I guess probably no, don't really know the reaction. No one knows so no, exactly. how, how so bad it is. They yeah. probably haven't even got a but serum that, for that, have they? That's what makes it probably so dangerous. Yeah. You, just, you just don't yeah. know. I say they probably haven't even got a serum Not for that. that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and the locals probably use uh, traditional methods. Yeah, if if they get bitten by it. Yeah, um, I'm not sure exactly so what. Basically, that is. you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that adds a little bit of excitement, doesn't it? To yeah, you know, traipsing through the tropical rainforest. Yeah, yeah, no, it's. I'd love to go back. It and takes do... your takes your mind off the insect bites, I should think. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty bad. Um, but yeah, should we go on to the, the accident? Yeah, what happened to your... <laughs> yeah, so the, come on. The, the only fortunate thing about this accident is it happened at the end and not the beginning, because otherwise yeah. we wouldn't be able to see all of your lovely photos. Yeah, just think about that. You'd never have got the shot of the orangutan yeah. or the elephant. That would have been an absolute so, disaster. Anyway, so... What happened to your two cameras, Josh? So, it was in South Sumatra. Um, I was with Pungi, actually, at the time, and there was a report of a false garial, which is a sort of quite a large fish-eating crocodilian. Um, and it was living in this river in a village that had a lot of fish farms. And it was basically picking off the scraps that fell out of these farms and into the river. And, um, yeah, we went looking for it and <laughs> on some pretty precarious bridges. Um, and, you know, I saw <clears throat> the bridge that we went on, I seen motorbikes go over it, so I thought, oh, I'll be fine if I just you know, step on it and have a look. Uh, Pongi stepped on it as well, but he didn't fall through. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just went to have a little peek over the edge and the bridge just snapped beneath my feet. And And you were gone. Into a crocodile. I had all my camera gear on me and I fell. I hit the bridge and went into the water. Um, 
And I'm just lucky I didn't hit my head or something. No, I was saying. Yeah, we <laughs> talk about the camera gear, but yeah, really, yeah. given I'll, where you were, it's very lucky. I was going to say that the camera hurt. gear probably was the best thing to have lost and yeah. nothing worse to have happened, really. I had um, a bruise on my the inside of my leg. It's about a foot across. That was... We won't talk about your insurance policy having run out either, will we? Uh, let's, let's, let's leave that up. Cut that up. Cut, we'll that, cut, out. Yeah, we'll cut that bit, <laughs> we'll cut that bit <laughs> out. But it is pretty... I mean, it's obviously great that you got out relatively unscathed, but it's still pretty gutting to lose two cameras yeah. in one hit. Yeah, but as you say, at the end of the trip, um, I had all my files, thankfully. Um, You'd obviously downloaded them all before. But, I mean, did you get the... Obviously, because you got the SD cards and stuff in the cameras. And Well, no, I just took the SD cards out straight away. Right, uh, and they survived. Dried them a bit. Yeah, and they yeah. Fine. Well, of course they survived because we're seeing the pictures, but that was a that was a result. Yeah, Um I don't, actually, my wallet fell out as well, um, but we saw it floating down the river. So we <laughs> managed towards the crocodile. We managed to retrieve it. Oh, well, I should note that the crocodile wasn't there. Oh, right. I'm pretty, pretty <laughs> okay. sure it wasn't there. But um, this particular species of crocodile is not really considered a man eater anyway. It's um, might have eaten your wallet though. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's it's got a very sort of thin snout uh, designed to catch fish. Yeah. Um, and attacks on people are not common at all, really. Um, it's a lot more fun to tell people that you fell into a crocodile-infested <laughs> Yeah, that sounded quite traumatic, actually. Yeah. No, I think you spoiled that now. Yeah. If, if it was a saltwater crocodile, I'd yeah, be very yeah, scary. Yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, they genuinely can eat people. But, um, yes, I guess, and again, the consolation is it was the end of your trip, I suppose. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, And now you've got the absolute fantastic pleasure of going off and buying a brand-new camera. Yeah, um yeah, they so, needed replacing, Josh. Come on, yeah. you've had them a long time, mate. You actually threw them in there intentionally. <laughs> just so you yeah, but at the time, you thought you still had an insurance policy. Yeah. Oh, no, we weren't going to mention that, were we? Sorry. No, no. Cut that out again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm looking at a new camera, probably either a Z6 II or a, Z, a Z7 II. Sorry. Um, but after our discussion earlier, I think maybe Z6 II is better bang for buck. I think overall, I think yeah. you'll find that as much as you need I said 7.2 with the big files is just mm. you know, it's great but you'll find file management and uh, 24 megapixel on Z6.2 will be more than enough yeah, yeah so it's I a think... really top quality well, obviously you have to get that bit of kit. ready for your for your next trip yeah where uh, yeah anywhere where are you yeah, going I mean, next yeah, we, and should yeah, we move on to that we'll probably we'll move on to that then we'll wrap up yeah i, I reckon so, yeah. so okay. sumatra sounded and looked sounded absolutely incredible sounded yeah, amazing it's, it's sounded kind of, like it needs some help um, yeah it's difficult to say everything about it really sure in this short time yeah <laughs> but um i hope i yeah i think you certainly have done it justice and, and a really good job of highlighting yeah. the good stuff out there been, and people it's working been great uh, as well as some of the the issues that it's facing fascinating to um, hear about it but yeah where where are you off to next so my next trip will be with major trek um leading a tour in search of reptiles and amphibians in morocco again and what what sort of you say for reptiles and amphibians? Obviously, but what is it that sort of draws people there? What species are you really hoping to show to show people? The big one is the Saharan horned viper, right? Cerastes, Cerastes. Um, yeah, it's incredible. It's <laughs> so Morocco is obviously a really good place for reptiles. Yeah, yeah, and um, you've also got some interesting lizards. Um, various geckos, like the northern elegant gecko, is yeah. quite popular among. But what about the birds, Josh? 
I, I stopped for birds too. <laughs> oh, you, you would have liked this actually. Um, we were doing something called road cruising. Uh, where you basically hit the road at night time. <laughs> <laughs> where are you going with this, Josh? <laughs> and look for reptiles ah, okay. on the road, yeah. making the most of the warm tarmac. Yeah. Um, but while we were doing this, a pharaoh eagle owl was on the road. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I saw it for about three seconds. Big bird, that's absolutely stunning. But it was yeah, a great three seconds. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I interrupted your Morocco, Morocco and reptiles. Yeah, um, yeah. another big one is the uh, white-bellied carpet viper, Echis lucigaster, which is probably one of Morocco's rarest snakes. Right. But um, One that you've seen? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, there's a area in the deep south of Morocco on basically on the edge of the Sahara um, where I wouldn't say it's reliable but you've got the best chance of seeing them right okay it's like a dried riverbed um, and they like to live in the sort of cracks in the mud um, so walking around there at night time is quite quite interesting uh, yeah um, oh and also uh, you get puff adders in Morocco which is quite interesting because you often associate them with being a sub-Saharan species. Right. But Morocco is a fascinating place, um, sort of geologically. Um, so basically the reason you get some now sub-Saharan species still existing in Morocco is because of the African humid period. Right. Um, which is a time in the Earth's history where, well, it's like a cyclical thing that happens every 5,000 years or something. Um, so obviously <laughs> we'll be able to see what that's like. Yeah. But basically, the Sahara shrinks and expands. And, um, yeah, the reason you get things like uh, puff adders, African house snake um, surviving in Morocco, which are usually associated with sub-Saharan Africa, is because they became isolated when um, the Sahara expanded again. Right. Um, And because they rely on that little boost of humidity, which is not very common in Morocco... Um, they rely on the mist from the Atlantic right. to sweep over the, the coastal habitat in which they live. Um, and they've been able to survive there ever since. Um, and yeah, it's pretty amazing, really, that they're still there. You can certainly see why people would pay to come on a reptile tour out in Morocco. It does and how, how long does the tour go on for? Uh, it's eight days. Oh, okay. So it's pretty full on. Yeah. Yeah. Exhausting, um, I think. Yeah, it is. I mean, we, we start in Agadir. Um, we basically drive across the whole of Morocco down to the south. Wow. Um, it's pretty easy driving. Yeah. Um, and from one uh, accommodation to the next, it's not that bad. Yeah. At the end of the trip, you realise just how far you've Yeah, you've probably driven. how little sleep you've had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and that, because you're out in the morning, yeah, exactly. afternoon, yeah. evening, repeat. Yeah. <laughs> But that's what you have to do for reptiles. They're not easy to find. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. In that case, the we'll finish on what would be your bucket list location and bucket list species. I know it's not easy to pick one, but I'm going to ask you for one anyway. Yeah, where in the world do haven't you... you been that you really, really want to go and it would be top of your list? Well, there's another place within Indonesia, but should I go outside of Indonesia? Where, wherever wherever, wherever you like. <laughs> I'll do, I'll do within Indonesia and then outside of Indonesia. Okay. So within Indonesia, uh, Raja Ampat, uh, New Guinea. Right. Uh, I'd love to go there in search of um, birds of paradise. Yeah, I'm coming with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and there's also... You can borrow the Z9 if you want. (laughs) That's a deal. (laughs) You'd have to deal with the toilet situation, though. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I could deal with that for a bird of paradise. (laughs) And and not just the... um, the birds of paradise off the off the coast of um, New Guinea. There's an island called Wagio, and on Wagio you have an endemic cuscus species. Cuscus is a sort of mostly arboreal marsupial. Yeah, not something you put in like a salad. <laughs> no, <laughs> and it's got like this uh, sort of creamy white coat with brown spots all over it, and it just looks incredible. And I'd love to see that. So that's the only place you can see it. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's uh, various interesting reptiles that live in New Guinea as well, such as um, sailfin dragons, hydrosaurus. It's like uh, probably the closest thing to Spinosaurus you can see today. <laughs> um, Which would be quite a sight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then outside of Indonesia. Ooh, that's difficult. Sri Lanka is up there. Yeah, Costa Rica. Yeah, custom. I can't decide, to be honest. <laughs> New Guinea was the first one that popped to my mind, so I'll stick with that. We did some work on the ecotourism, and we, we did some research on Yeah, we never fe- since we I really of, want to go. We sort of fell in love with Costa Rica, yeah. even though we've never been there. Yeah. Well, I think Costa Rica... Biodiversity is meant to be absolutely incredible in Costa Rica. Yeah, and it's a very well-managed country. Um, and I was just about to say, they are working so hard to mm. restore rainforest, to yep. protect the environment. It, it's a really and happening so we'll, place. We'll give it another plug. If you want to learn more about Costa Rica, go listen to our last episode. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done, Matt. Yeah. But I think, you know, every sort of country that's within a biodiversity hotspot should follow their yeah. template if they can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Sumatra, Madagascar. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah that would be really good if that yeah. could be great happen, to see. Yeah. unique with leaders unfortunately yeah. uh, for that to happen <laughs> yeah well Josh it's been a really really interesting episode thank you so much for being our first guest that is a pleasure um, we've had a little, few little technical issues which I'm hoping that haven't come out on, on yeah, the you'll recording have a so I've had a bit of editing to do but it's been brilliant uh, to have you and so where yeah. where well, obviously we've given it a bit of a, a mention but where can people find you if they want to go and see your photos and and uh any of the other content that you'd like so, to give a bit of a shout out yeah i'm mostly active on instagram at the moment um and that's at fangora underscore nature you might have to we'll stick a link yeah. in because i got a difficult name to spell <laughs> uh and i also post just on my um facebook account uh josh fangora should be able to find me quite easily but um, actually soon uh, I'm looking into setting up a website uh, to make a portfolio um, so when that's up I'll let you guys know and, okay and yeah. um, you know, feel free to do a shameless plug about Nature Trek if you want you know <laughs> Math does it for the Rivers Trust every episode so um. uh, well yeah I mean Nature Trek you can look them up and see it for yourself it's a lovely website they've got um and they go to pretty much every corner of the world, including both poles. Yeah. And you um, could end up on a tour with Josh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely check that website out. Um, that, that's that's a good website. I've had a good look at that. So. Yeah. yeah. And we, we cover sort of natural history topics all the way from birding to butterfly watching, herpetology, yeah. uh, whale watching. Uh, you name it, it's there. <laughs> so... Yeah, go go check them out. Brilliant. Well, again, thank you for being our first guest. I wouldn't be surprised if I asked you to come back because you have all sorts of interesting projects that I think would make quite fun podcast episodes. So, Definitely, sure. yeah. Um, but thank you very much for coming on. That has been a pleasure. I should also say that I'm a listener myself and 
it's a real enjoyable listen when I'm driving to work. So, oh, we all honestly didn't prompt him to. Yeah, say I'll that. give him the fiver afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> we'll end with that. Nice we really appreciate then. that, yeah. Josh. It's been great. Thanks very much, and Cheers. we'll catch you all next time. Thanks yeah. for listening. Bye.